Welcome back, Cal and listeners. This is Methodical Millions, episode 49. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. So Cal, I'm probably the most excited I've been in a year because we've got our first guest joining us today. And I want everyone listening to welcome Mr. Peter Lohman. Thanks for joining us. Why don't you say hi and tell us a bit about yourself? I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be the first guest on your show. A little bit of background about myself. I'll kind of give you the 30,000 foot view. I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering in 2007, and I moved out here to Columbus, Ohio, and just started working as a control systems engineer. And during that time, became interested in real estate and ended up buying a single family rental property with my business partner, who's also an engineer. So we stumbled around, figured that out, got it rented, got it fixed up, and really fell in love with real estate at that point. So the short story is we continued to do that for a while and then saw an opportunity to start a property management company. And that dovetailed nicely with our desire to exit our day jobs and build something of our own. So in 2013, I quit my engineering job and started RL Property Management, which is what I do now. The company grew pretty quickly, and today we manage about 450 rental units. That is really, really cool. Kudos to you. Proud of you for that. Did you know this business partner for a while? And it's funny how powerful engineers are when they put their mind to something. No one ever takes no for an answer. (laughs) So how long have you guys known each other? So his name's Adam. He and I actually grew up together. We came up through Boy Scouts. We met there and both became Eagle Scouts. And we stayed in touch. He actually went to Ohio State. I went to another smaller school in Western Pennsylvania. But we stayed in touch during that time and both had the entrepreneur bug. Even back in the Boy Scout days, we tried to do some business where we would convert records to CDs for people who had old albums that they couldn't listen to anymore. It failed. But Even back then, we were like, okay, there's got to be a way to make some money here that doesn't rely on working for somebody else. So yeah, we stayed in touch and he was a year ahead of me. So when I graduated, I moved out here because he had already gotten a job as an engineer and he helped me get a job at the firm he was working at. And he had purchased a single family home. So I rented a room from him. Eventually, we turned that into one of our rental properties. I bought out half of it. He and I are 50-50 on everything. I really think there is something to the engineering. I often think about engineers. I think they have similarity with attorneys and lawyers, where what you learn in school, you're learning first principles. You're learning how to think, how to be logical and rational and break a problem down. And the tools and techniques that you learn in engineering, yeah, they're useful if you want to go into engineering work, but they're broadly applicable. It really teaches you how to think about a problem. And if you encounter another problem that's similar, but not the same, you become very good at taking what you've learned in one area and applying it somewhere else. That's, I think, one of the most powerful things I took out of my engineering education. It really does actually sound like a superpower. And if you take an engineer who mixes business, there really is no limit to what you can do. It's almost exciting. And I've heard Elon Musk say it, the limit's essentially physics. You're driving what you want to do. Property two, when do you guys decide that you're going to make this a real thing and maybe go for the second property? What was the thought process there? 
we bought our first property in late 2008 and the country was racked with the global financial crisis. So we bought that property, we fixed it up, we rented it out. And I think it was about a year later that we bought the second one and it was really close by to the first property. It was actually right around the corner. I think that helped us get comfortable with it because we already knew the area. Both of these properties happen to be Ohio State student housing type neighborhood. So both of them are rented to students. We still own both of those properties today, by the way. The thinking at the time was, okay, this first property worked well. We got familiar with how to manage a rental property, the basics anyway. And we wanted to keep going because we had a vision back then. And we were inspired by reading things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and The Millionaire Next Door, a lot of the classic books that I think a lot of entrepreneurs read and become inspired by, especially Rich Dad, Poor Dad. There's problems with that text and the author, but there's principles in there that are sound. And one of them is that if you want to be financially free, you need to own assets. You can't just work for somebody else. And so we really viewed real estate as our path to owning assets. So we wanted to keep going. We wanted to do some more. So we saw another deal come up. And we went for it. And this time we pulled in investor capital. The first deal was just our own money, but some of the other deals we did in the coming years, we brought in limited partners, which don't get excited. It was literally friends and family. My mom's one of the investors, but I think that's how everyone starts. So that worked pretty well too. We had to figure out how to do distributions and a preferred return. We ended up doing a complicated waterfall model. We learned a lot on that one too. That's very admirable, Peter. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and like you said, there are things that you can take and leave from that book, but there's basics of it that you really find quite interesting and that help entrepreneurs get off the floor. There's just the ABCs of it. You started 2008 with your first property, which is a year after your graduation. So you were ready to go right from the start, which is very, very interesting. I do have a question, which is, did you have a mentor or is it just completely self-driven? You learned the ropes with your partner along the way, trying to find the connections. And how did you start with that? I had no mentor and I had no family who had ever done anything like this. But I certainly cannot and will not take all the credit. My business partner had always been more interested in real estate than I was. He was very big on the idea of buying a rental property and renting it out. He had already gone through the process of purchasing a property since he had bought this single family home. So he knew a realtor, he knew a lawyer, and had at least done it once before. And he, I think, definitely was responsible for giving me the confidence and really showing the way. And he and I had gotten into all kinds of goofy stuff over the years in Boy Scouts. So I really trusted him and I knew that he was a smart guy and he was also a fairly conservative risk taker. So if he said there was money to be made here, I believed him. There's no way I would have done it by myself. I was 23 when we bought our first property, and there's no denying that my W-2 income being an engineer gave me a massive leg up. I think I was really lucky to get a job at that time. The scene for job seekers in 2007 when I graduated was not good. It was rough, but engineers were still in demand, and so I was really lucky in that way. And I was pulling down quite respectable salary for someone who was 23 years old. So that let us save up money and be able to actually buy property. Now, bear in mind, properties were massively discounted compared to where you see them in the last five years. So it was also a lot easier from that standpoint. I can always tell when someone's 
really good at what they do when they downplay their success. <laughs> so like in this case with Peter, I got to say, because I deal with clients every day and the ones who always big themselves up without really knowing you almost have something to prove without actually much substance, I find. But I can tell Peter is the man because he's always attributing his success to other things, but we don't get the real story of the hard work and the ingenuity there. So you guys took advantage of an opportunity that was there. And I think that is what people keep their eyes closed to. They don't actually pay attention. And just trying sometimes, I think, is part of the secret. And the whole learning and growing, it's amazing what you can learn just by doing and by trying and you figure yeah. it out. I think that's the secret. You just go with it. And I'm excited for you. It's inspiring. So really happy to have you on. That's really, really cool. What's that waterfall thing you were talking about? I'm the technical guy. I like to sure. learn the mechanics of what that looks like. Do you guys have a cap table? And what can you tell me there? Yeah. So sometime after we bought our first property, I was still at my day job traveling around for work. And I was stuck. I think it was the Chicago O'Hare airport. And I happened to sit next to a guy while I was getting a sandwich and just struck up a conversation with him. And it turned out he was from Columbus too. So we started chatting a little bit further and I learned that he was a very experienced real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. So he and I talked further and he is the one that introduced me into this waterfall model. Up until this point, I had never heard of real estate syndication or a preferred return or any of these things that are much more widely known these days. So he and I talked and I stayed in touch. We got together with my business partner after we got back to Columbus and he shared a spreadsheet that he uses on his huge real estate deals. This guy's been in it for a long time. He's doing multi-million dollar deals. But we took that spreadsheet and we studied it for weeks because it was the underwriting for a huge real estate deal. And it showed the capital allocations, the equity, the debt, the five-year predictions of revenue and expenses, and how everything would be paid out when the property was sold. I mean, it was really complicated, but we really studied it. We figured it out eventually. And what it basically was showing how distributions are handled for the limited partners. And for whatever reason, this guy used this really complicated waterfall model where instead of the investors getting like a 7% preferred return, where the first 7% return generated by the property goes to the investors and the rest is split 50-50. Instead, it was like the first 5% goes 100% to the limited partners. The next 2% goes 70-30 to the investors, 30% to the general partner, the syndicator. And then the next 3% was 50-50. And then Anything left over for that was 70 to the general partner and 30 to limited partner. I'm making up these numbers, but it was something like that. And the idea was that it was supposed to motivate the general partner to deliver above average performance on the margin. There's this concept called the principal agent problem where if you're working on behalf of somebody else and you're acting as their fiduciary, meaning you're supposed to be acting in their best interests and making decisions on their behalf, think realtor or lawyer or CPA, there's this problem of alignment of interests or alignment of incentives, right? In this domain, the thinking is that if the limited partner is making a 7% prep and then everything else is split 50-50 after that, there's not much incentive 
for the general partner to deliver exceptional performance because the difference between an 8% and a 9% return for the general partner is very marginal. But for the limited partner, it's a big deal. And so this structure was supposed to sort of like break it up on the margins there such that the syndicator was inspired to really work hard for that last couple percent of return. I don't know if I'm doing a good job explaining that, but it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys ever read the, in Freakonomics, it was shown that realtors basically don't actually try that hard to sell your home for top dollar because when you look at their commission, the difference between getting $200,000 and $215,000, it ends up being 300 bucks for the realtor. So they don't really care. They just want to get the deal done. It's the same type of thing. It's trying to break that up and sort of slice it to create a better alignment of incentives. No, it makes perfect sense, actually. And I'm in sales myself, and sometimes it's an everyday thing. We forget that it's a big deal for someone to buy a car or buy a house. And I always had this mentality too, which is if I'm selling something I own and it's my only house or my only car, I'm going to want top dollar because this event doesn't happen that often. I've heard the story of like an EMT or somebody who's a paramedic. It's just another day at the office where they're helping someone stay alive and life-changing for the client or the person on the table, but the person doing their job is just average, just a regular day. So you brought up a fascinating point, which is how do you become superhuman that outperforms everyone else? I suppose my next question is, how did that waterfall model work out? Or did you need something else in terms of engineering to really succeed? Because I'm from Canada and 400 properties sounds like a lot of properties. So you got to be doing something right. I know the US is just on a grander scale as well. So what did you do different? And is that normal? Is 400 properties or so a normal occurrence? Yeah. So in terms of the waterfall structure that we use on a couple of these real estate syndications, to be honest, I don't know that it made that much of a difference for a few reasons. One, my business partner and I were highly motivated to make these properties successful. For one thing, we had plenty of our own money invested in these deals as well. And for another thing, we were trying to establish a track record. So if our first couple deals were flops, we weren't going to get any more money from friends and family, much less anybody else. So I really don't think that waterfall model was needed. If anything, it just made things a little bit more complicated and confusing for the limited partners. So if I had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't use that. I would use a much more straightforward model. In terms of the 400 some units that we manage, just to clarify, I still only own about 14 units with my business partner. The rest of those are all third-party management and we just manage units owned by other real estate investors for them for a fee. And the 400 some units that we're at, It's larger than most property managers, but it's by no means what the folks in the industry would think of as a big property management company. There's many, many management companies that manage thousands of units, including one or two in our city. So we're probably in the top five largest third-party management companies in Columbus. We're bigger than a lot, but nowhere near being huge. That's very, very cool. And I was going through some of the articles you've written and one of them which was about your checklist process and how you use those methods or tools without any coded programming. And it was a bit more technical for me because I'm not invested in real estate, but I still found it incredibly fascinating. I read through both part one and part two, and I thought, 
this guy's got it down to a T. It shows that either you went through some challenges that made you iron these things out. It seemed so organized, so well put together. And I'm no expert in the field. I was just so fascinated. And for those of you out there who have any mild interest in the matter, please go check out Peter's Twitter page. Yeah. So these are on my Medium blog. If you just Google my name and Medium, you'll find it. And the article I recently wrote is about 4,000 words on the property management business, sort of the property management space from the perspective of someone who's interested in starting a property management business or buying one. So I tried to give like a high level overview of here's what's going on in the industry. Here's how it's organized and structured. Here's what you need to know if you want to start one of these companies or you're trying to value one for purchase. And I would have killed for something like that when I started. Kind of like most industries, you really don't know anything from the outside. And no matter how much Googling you do or listening to podcasts or reading books, there's so much knowledge that's just taken for granted by people who are in the industry, but would be incredibly valuable for someone who's on the outside. So I tried to put myself in the mindset of someone who was on the outside and also think back to the questions that people commonly ask me and sort of compile that all in one place. So that's a great place to start if you're curious about property management as a business. And yeah, I wrote a couple more technical articles about how we use no-code tools and low-code tools and checklists to make our business more efficient, talking about how we use like Zapier and Airtable and a couple other tools to make things run a little more smoothly. That's the type of thing that I almost couldn't stop myself from doing because of my engineering background. I see something, a system or a process that's being done manually or error prone, or you end up double entering data. And I'm like, I got to fix that. It's almost a compulsion. I don't even know if it's a good use of my time, but I really like to see stuff like that running smoothly. I have a bit of science background myself. Even though I went to school for accounting and finance, I truly love the engineering aspects of things. And I can see that in your writing. I found it incredibly fascinating. And I'm not just saying that. It's because it's detailed. It's quite organized. I mean it. It's an easy read. So even a person like me who knows really nothing about the ins and outs of what you do or how things work, I understood every word. And there are things out there that others take for granted. And a person like you who taught themselves from scratch and learned from your partner a bit and learned as you go, it's nice to see that you put all that experience in a simple blog that's easy to read, that's very accessible, really well done there. And whoever can read it, please give it a read. It's really interesting. And I'm guessing that's what you normally do so far. That's been working out pretty well in terms of the no-code tools and the checklist process that you have. Well, it really came about because property management, I like to say it's an inch deep and a mile wide. The business of property management, it's literally nothing more than a series of tasks. And if I think back in my time in eight years of property management, I've never spent more than about 25 minutes doing any one thing, which is the polar opposite of my engineering work where I would be handed a project and I would literally work on the same project for three and a half months. So property management, it's not project-based. There's no projects really in property management. It's a very reactive type of business where someone's interested in a property, I got to get over there and show it. Someone wants to renew their lease, I got to sign it and get it back to them. A client called, they want to tour their property with an appraiser, I got to schedule that. So 
you know, you're doing all these little things and it's really important that they're done in the right order and that they're done correctly and that everything that needs to be communicated about what's happening is shared with everyone who's interested, the tenant, the client, the appraiser, other people on the team, the city. So it took me a while to kind of wrap my arms around how to structure the operations of a business like this, because everything I learned about how to manage an engineering project was basically useless. It's just a totally different thing. So it turns out that checklists are the cornerstone of a successful property management operations. There's a bunch of common core activities that property managers do every day. And what you have to do is document those in a checklist and then use that checklist every time without exception. So every time a lease is signed, we have a checklist for that. Every time we get a new client, we have a checklist for that. Every time someone doesn't pay their rent, we have a checklist for that. And it goes on. We have like six or seven of these sort of core checklist templates that we use. And so once I figured that out, I just wrote these up in Microsoft Word and I printed them off. So every time a tenant called and said, hey, I need to renew my lease, I would literally print off a lease renewal checklist. And then I would kind of follow the steps that I had outlined. And one of the nice things about structuring your work this way is it's really easy to improve the process. So almost immediately upon writing it and using it, you're going to be like, oh, wait, let me combine these steps or let me reverse the order. Or actually, hey, I forgot about this one thing that we have to do. If it's a Section 8 tenant, let me write a little sub checklist. So like if it's a yes, that it's a Section 8 tenant, I do these other things and you're getting a little bit of logic in there. It's great because you're sort of continuously improving these cornerstone processes and making your business more efficient and less likely to make a mistake. So kind of the obvious next step is we got to get this digital. I mean, it was getting ridiculous with these paper checklists and where do you put them when you're done? And what if you're waiting on someone else? You set it to the side, then you forget. So I did a bunch of research. This was probably 2013, 2014, shortly after we started the company. And I tried to find a checklist template online software. And at the time, if you Googled that, you kind of got nothing. So I was looking and some people said Asana. I had used Asana for something else and I didn't like the look and feel of it. It felt very clunky at the time. And eventually I stumbled upon this software called Process Street, which is literally exactly what I needed. Everything I just described is what Process Street does. It lets you create checklist templates and then you can run instances of the template for each tenant who's moving in or new client or what have you. And it lets you control that template. You can make updates easily and roll them out to all the checklists that are in progress. You can have instructions for each step. You can even include videos and pictures next to it. So the checklist is basically self-documenting so that you write the lease signing checklist and you include all the instructions for each step, possibly even including a video, like a little screen recording of you showing how to move a tenant in the software. And then when you hire somebody, you can just assign them the checklist and say, hey, here's your checklist. Follow the instructions for each step. Let me know if you have any questions. So it's very powerful. And I talk a lot about Process Street and those two posts I made on Medium because it's just really, really good stuff. That's awesome. And I can imagine that with automation comes scalability. And that's the first thing I think of. So are there any gaps you need to fill in order to go fully automated? Or is there always going to be 
this human oversight to make sure nothing's burning down? And what are your thoughts on that kind of thing? Yeah. Where do you see the growth from where you are today? Yeah, there's definitely still a long way to go. I know it looks impressive in those articles I wrote, but realistically, we've really only automated maybe 5 to 10% of what's possible or what we should do. I picked the low-hanging fruit. The main issue, though, is that the software that we use doesn't all talk to each other. So the main property management software that's kind of like the bedrock of our business is called Buildium. And if anyone's familiar with rental management software, it's a lot like Appfolio. But Buildium doesn't talk to any of the other software. It doesn't talk to Zapier. It doesn't talk to Process Street. It doesn't talk to Airtable. So you end up having to copy and paste data in and out of these checklists to try and sync it up with the software. And so it's a big holdup. It's a big limiting factor. You still need people who are very much involved. Okay, a tenant just submitted a move out notice from Buildium but there's no way to automatically start the checklist. Someone has to actually go in and read the message from the tenant and then manually click to start a checklist and process street. So there's a long way to go. There's still a lot of things that there's no checklist for. Picture a tenant calling you and saying, I just moved in two weeks ago and there's a lot of dog waste in the yard that's not for me because I don't have a dog and my neighbor is smoking and it's coming in my window. And also my aunt was going to help me with the rent, but you get all these weird edge cases that you really need a human to talk to the person, calm them down, get to the source of the issues, and take the lead on initiating various things that need to happen. So there's certainly a limit. It's never going to be like a software business where you build the product and now you kind of scale infinitely. There's a limit to the number of units you can manage per employee at a management company. A hundred is the general guideline that a lot of people use. So for every hundred units you manage, you're going to need somebody in the office helping to manage. Would you say you've got about four employees now? And is that the idea? We actually have 15 employees. (laughs) Two of those are myself and the other owner. Six of those are full-time maintenance people. And the rest are what you would think of as traditional property management employees. We're a little bit overstaffed for our size right now. And that's deliberate so we can easily and quickly grow as our clients and new customers bring us properties to manage. We're also at a little bit of an awkward size where at a certain point you start to need to have managers and they don't really contribute what's called direct labor toward the actual management of the properties. They're more like managing the people who are managing the properties. So that kind of evens out as you scale up from where we are now, but we're at a little bit of an awkward size. Yeah, I hear you. It's like the middle managers doing nothing and the employees are wondering, why are you my boss? (laughs) You're doing nothing all day. How did you even get this job? (laughs) Right? Yep. So you brought up a good point, which is tenant issues. And I wanted to know, you mentioned the human aspect and that's cool that you're personable that way. It's important, I think. And what do you find works in terms of, it just sounds like an insurmountable problem, 400 phone calls at once or maybe 20 or 40 in a day. Do you delegate that between the employees or are you hands-on? What does a day in the life of Peter look like? Well, I'm very much hands-off from the tenant side of things these days. So those employees I mentioned, they are on the front lines. You know, they're getting the calls, they're getting the emails, they're signing the leases. You know, it wasn't always that way. When I started, it was just me and I did everything. But when we started, we managed zero other than the ones we owned. 
And then when you only manage six properties, it's pretty easy to do all that yourself. So it's kind of just like any business, you know, as you start to grow, you both put in systems and processes and you put certain people in charge of certain tasks. So we have a director of property management who oversees four or five employees that are all taking those calls, receiving the rents, dealing with evictions, dealing with everything that a property manager does. And they all have been trained and they all have sort of a handbook that they use that can reference. And they come to me with high level one-off weird questions. And that's the name of the game in business. You have to get leverage. You can't do it all yourself. So some of that leverage comes through tools and code and systems. Some of that leverage comes through other people that you hire and train. I do still have a fair bit of involvement in the day-to-day of the business on the client side. So the property owners, that's who we call our clients, they still like to hear from me. They call or email with questions. I'm still doing some of the high-level accounting and some of the other complicated edge case stuff that's harder to train somebody and that I find either quick and easy or relatively enjoyable. Yeah. I just wanted to say, someone put it to me once, the job of a CEO is to hire the smartest people you know, and when they can't solve a problem, they come to you. So there's going to be that level of involvement. Eventually, you get to the point where they literally know more about it than you do, but they may not realize that. So you have to sort of help them explore that. So for example, I still get a lot of questions from our employees about this or that, you know, rent payment is late, what should we do? And the client wants this or that, but the tenant says no. And how do we handle that? And lately I've really been pushing back a little and saying, hey, I'm trying not to make property level decisions these days. What do you recommend? And that sort of forces them to think about it. And we have some sort of overarching principles that apply to every decision we make here. The first of which is what's in the client's best interest. And that gets back to that fiduciary concept I mentioned earlier, the principal agent problem. As property managers in the state of Ohio, we are legally bound by a fiduciary duty to our clients, which means the law says we must act in their best interest. And it's also the right thing to do. So that's what I always say. I say, all right, well, what's in the client's best interest? What do you think we should do given that? And they usually come up with some plausible sounding solution. I say, yeah, it sounds good. Go ahead and do that. So that's how you sort of instill confidence and extricate yourself. Because if you keep making the decisions for other people, they're going to keep coming to you and they're not going to gain the confidence and frankly, experience that they need. And they're going to make mistakes and that's fine. Most things are reversible. If they make a mistake, we can always credit the client for whatever happened, but there's just no other way to scale. You have to let people start making decisions for you. That's fantastically simple. And I agree with all of that. Some people don't realize, like I said, but they just need the leadership to help them get there. And by encouraging them, they might come up with an answer or a solution to the problem or the issue that you didn't think of. And that's where you have a team that can really be self-sustained. Sometimes they just need that one person or someone to guide them to actually get to where they need to get to. And it's a very elegant solution. And it's really what leadership is about. Instead of being a manager or a boss, tell people what to do. It's more like, what do you think we should do to get there? There's a great book on this called The E-Myth. I think Michael Gerber is the author. I avoided that book for years because I thought it had something to do with e-commerce, but it has nothing to do with the internet. The E stands for entrepreneur. And it's all about what we've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes. It's about how to extricate yourself 
from working in your business every day to working on your business and how to think about making that transition because it's something that many, if not most entrepreneurs struggle with. Once they get their business to a certain size, they feel like, well, no one knows this as well as I do. I have to be the one who's doing X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. I'm the only one smart enough. And it's a combination of ego and just fear that prevents people from bringing others in and training them and letting them run with it. And I still struggle with it. I mean, just literally last week, I turned over a task to our assistant property manager, which is handling the contract renewals for our clients. So our clients who own the properties, they're on these one-year agreements and those come up for renewal every year. And I've been the one who's sending out those renewals for e-signature all these years. And I always felt like, well, this is so important. It's the contract we have with the client and everyone's a little different and has these edge cases. I have to be the one to handle this. Well, I finally just became so busy. I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I took some time. I recorded a little video explaining how to do it. I sent it to our assistant property manager and now she's handling it. She had a couple questions and now she's running with it. And that's just an example of what we've been talking about. You get all caught up in what you've been doing. You don't realize that your team is there to help you. They want to help you. And if you just let them, they're going to, in many cases, do a better job than you ever would. Or maybe they won't, but that's okay, right? If they're doing it 85% as well as you, that's probably fine because your time as the business owner and the entrepreneur is better spent on other things. Picture you turning a crank at 100% efficiency versus you have a team of 100 people all turning cranks at 85% efficiency. Which one's going to produce more? You got to let go at a certain point. I like that a lot. I think it's very eye-opening to me because I think when people don't know it's a new project for them and they want to be an entrepreneur, they want to think of the future. I think you're right. People start on this journey of it's me, 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 it's my business. And then no one really learns how to graduate to the other side. And I've heard it said before that the person who's the founder might not be the best CEO, but it sounds like you've found a way to grow past that. I'm really impressed that that's the case. And I'm learning so much on this. I'm really, really glad you came on today. That's awesome. What can you say about the principles you were talking about? So is there any other high level things that you guys operate under that you can share for our listeners? Yeah. So number one, as I mentioned, is what's in the client's best interest. That's first. And that always takes priority over anything else. Now, number two, followed closely behind is, and I haven't thought of a quick and fun way to summarize this, but we need to be efficient with our time. It just so happens that the nature of the property management business is that your largest expense item by far is payroll. This isn't like an assets heavy business. I don't own a bunch of grain mills or tractors that I need to keep utilized. So because of the nature of the business, people are our most expensive line item on our budget. And so what that means is if you can manage more properties with the same number of people, all of that incremental gain goes right to the bottom line and increases your profits. And the flip side of that is if you have too many people managing too few properties, you're going to go broke in a hurry because payroll is just going to eat up all the revenue that you're generating. 
So because of that, I'm very, very aware of how much time it takes everyone to do everything that they're doing. So if you start to allow tenants and even clients to just suck up your team's time with just a bunch of silliness, or your team finds themselves chasing their tails on some weird edge case problem that you could solve with a $50 purchase, or it's hard to pin it down, but you have to almost be vigilant for every second of time spent by you and your team. And that was part of what drove me toward automation because that time is precious, right? A U.S. office employee, when you look at their all-in cost, it's about a dollar per minute that you're paying them when they're at work. And if you have 15 employees, that's $15 per minute that's going out the door. So you want to make those people productive. And they want to be productive too. Who wants to come home from work and feel like they didn't do anything? So you have to clear roadblocks. You have to provide ways of thinking about making decisions so that you don't have people running around doing a bunch of research for two hours on a decision that has a $20 consequence either way, right? It would be better to just make the decision and eat the $20. You'd still come out ahead even if you made the wrong decision. So our number two principle is be efficient with your time. And sometimes that means we have to take drastic action, right? We've had clients in the past who literally would call or email every day, literally seven days a week. They'd be having some question or concern or wanting us to check the property or accounting issues. And you take that as far as you can. You operate with patience and humility, but at a certain point, you have to make a business decision and say, hey, we're obviously not meeting your needs here. Something's not working. We think it would be better if we helped you find another property manager. And we've done that multiple times because I'm just so protective of my team's time. That sounds like another gem of a superpower that I never even thought of in any business. And what it sounds like is that's a real hack on how to grow and how to step outside of your business and say, what little changes can I do day to day to make us more productive? So it's no surprise that you've done so well so far. That is a really cool tip. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. So I wanted to thank you for coming on. I think we'll wrap it up there. Did you have any last minute things you wanted to bring up? Did you want to plug anything, maybe some social, some projects, anything like that? We'd love to put it uh, out there. I would say definitely uh, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter username is just P.S. Loman, just my name spelled out. I talk a lot about property management and small business on there, and I'd love to engage with folks if they have questions. I try to put together comprehensive resources for people who are interested in property management or small business. And there's a lot of fun conversations that have been happening there in the past few months. For people who haven't jumped on Twitter, it's really changed in the last six to nine months. I've been a Twitter user since 2009, but the last six to nine months, I've never really seen anything like it in terms of activity and sharing and transparency and camaraderie with the small business and real estate folks. So I put together a list. If you go to my profile, you'll see a list called property management. If you look at that list and you follow some of the people on there, you're going to be connected with an amazing resource of folks who, many of which are far further ahead in their journey than I am, who I'm learning from as well. So definitely recommend that. You can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. I share some of the behind the scenes stuff with our business. That's what I got. That's amazing. 
Thank you so much, Peter. It's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate your time and all the best in the future with all your endeavors. And thank you once again. Thanks for having me. Peter, it's been an absolute joy. I found everything is incredibly valuable. I wish you had you here for another two weeks. <laughs> it's just been very, very exciting to see a different perspective and awesome. learn so much from what you've said. And I'm very thrilled and quite honestly, very impressed. And just motivation for everyone out there to keep doing what they're doing. It's never too late. There's everything online. You can follow people like yourself. I myself had a Twitter account for years now and to be honest never even made a tweet <laughs> just recently i've been using twitter a bit more like you said because i found there's so much good yeah. information good people valuable knowledge out there and so you're going to see me Great. more active on twitter as well hopefully in the near future so absolutely follow peter there and you're always welcome to the show anytime you want to come back we'd love to have you and yeah, yeah thanks great, for guys. thank you awesome thanks so much and for our listeners we'll put all peter's info bio and articles in the show notes. So check us out methodicalmillions.com. We'll make sure to link you there. Cool. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. That was Methodical Millions, episode 49. If you'd like to follow future episodes, you can find us at methodicalmillions.com or info at methodicalmillions.com for episode feedback. Thanks, everyone.